mercy and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is All Saints Sunday, and we will be continuing our series in 1 Peter, acknowledging that Peter himself is, is one of the saints, and the particular saint that is laying before us the examples that he lived by. But even more than that, we have in our text the example of Jesus Christ and the life he lived. The pattern that Peter says becomes the example and model for our lives and what we can expect as fellow saints with Jesus Christ. But what I have to say to you today might make you feel a little uncomfortable. Do you remember Pew's? In churches, before they ever put cushions in, you know, they used to have no cushions in the churches. They were just wooden. And before that, they were just benches. You didn't even have anything to lean back against. And maybe it was a way to remind us that sometimes in church, the word of God is going to make us feel uncomfortable. And it needs to do that. And so we're being challenged today with some uncomfortable thoughts. If I were to send out a postcard into the community and say, hey, come to our church on November 6th, and let me tell you what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how to honor Joe Biden and Donald Trump at the same time. We're going to talk about how slaves should learn to take their beatings. And we're going to talk about how wives should obey their husbands. I'll tell you, the only people interested in coming to that service are probably the people we don't want in this church anyways. Those are some uncomfortable topics. Is that pew cushion feeling a little weaker? But we're going to address these topics because we don't get to pick and choose what the Bible says. And when we take on the Bible, the Bible takes on us. Ultimately, it does challenge our hearts and our humility to listen, to think carefully about complicated issues that date back to an ancient world that Peter's living in under the Roman Empire with emperors and laws and class warfare and the world we're living in today, which continues to have many challenges None of which is probably more controversial than submission. Bringing up the topic of submission in a modern American world probably seems antagonistic. But what we're really talking about is not honoring Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's not how slaves are beat It's not wives obeying. What we really are talking about today is honoring Jesus. And if we can't start there, then we won't ever get to these other topics successfully. We live in a world which is filled with entitlement, rights, individualism, and liberty for all. We live in a world where the self is the one who is Lord. But here we have Peter, who is laying out for us why his letter is so strange. 
The theme of our series in 1 Peter is the strangeness of our hope as Christians. And Christian hope is strange. It leads us into these areas that the world just can't handle. They can't handle talking about it. They can't handle living by it. Because it begins with submitting to Jesus. Jesus, it says, is the overseer of your soul. Chapter 2, verse 25. You were like straying sheep, but you now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. It begins with Jesus, and he's the foundation pattern for the other three topics. Government, society, and marriage. Jesus gives us six patterns that begins in verse 22. Number one, he committed no sin. Number two, no deceit was found in his mouth. Number three, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Number four, when he suffered, he did not threaten. Number five, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And number six, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Until we can begin there, which is basically Isaiah 53, carried out in Jesus, the suffering servant, we will continue to be lost and confused about our roles in this world. These six patterns are undoing the works of sin right before our eyes as Jesus submits to suffering, abuse, lying, and eventually even his own heavenly father telling him he needs to suffer for others. Those six patterns are like the six works of sin in creation, which leads us finally to the seventh, And the seventh is rest. The rest for the people of God is that as we see Jesus going through this, and as we live through the six patterns of suffering, it leads us to the cross. And it's at the cross where Peter says, by his wounds, you are healed. So let's jump into those three topics. Government society, and marriage, remembering that Jesus is the pattern. The Beatles wrote a song about revolution. Only John Lennon wasn't talking about starting a revolution. He was actually talking about all the revolutions that end up just leading us to the same place we started. They write, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know you can count me out? So the revolutions that are often meant to overthrow one dictator very often lead just to the next system of dictatorship and tyranny, just in a different form. One revolution to the next Human beings are so good at thinking they've got the best answer and then in the end just becoming the evil that they once hated. What the song goes on to say is said, 
that if you want a real solution, you really need to change your mind. Now, I'm not trying to endorse everything John Lennon or the Beatles wrote, but this is getting after something in our text that is true. When it says, be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to emperors or governors, this is the will of God, to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. What Peter is saying that if you want a real revolution, it begins with your mind. And Peter knows he's addressing people who are not all free. In the congregations that he's preaching to, you have women, you have slaves, you have um, indentured servants, you have soldiers who are trying to work out their sentence. These are not all people that are free, but he says, live as if you are free. Because the freedom comes in knowing that the person really in charge is not President Joe Biden or President Donald Trump or Congress or senators or kings or emperors. It's God. And it's our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one that designed all this. He designed it for a reason. Why do we even want order to begin with? Why do we want laws? But we jump over all of that and we go to right to the bad things that we despise. Now there's a very good reason to despise bad things. Things that are out of order, things that are chaotic, things that undo the good that God wants in this world. But what we're ultimately submitting to as citizens is not to the evil. We're submitting to the design. The design of order. And Peter's not calling on his people to start a revolution to overthrow the Roman government. That that's not the solution because in the end, the people overthrowing one government are just going to put in something that brings forth the same sort of tendencies toward human power as the one before it. It is not about this side or that side. It's about God's side. And that's hard to swallow, which is why we go back to the pattern of Jesus Christ. He committed no sin. There was no deceit, no exaggerations, no political warfare in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't abuse them back. When he suffered, he didn't threaten to bring his holy angels on them, but he entrusted himself to the judge of all because he knew he was submitting to a higher power. So there are many Christians in Peter's day who had to face oppression, persecution, and suffering that was coming as a result of their faith. And just like Jesus, Peter himself had to face it and died on a cross just like Jesus. In the end, it is God who is the judge. He will raise us from the dead. And by the wounds of Jesus Christ, we will be healed from any suffering any power in this world could bring on us.
which includes the suffering of slaves. And if you didn't think that things are going to be tough in the pulpit today, starting with government, now we're moving on to slavery. And in the days of Peter, slavery was a part of the structures of the society they lived in. It wasn't like slavery we might know in American history. It had other nuances to it that was woven into the economy as far as how people in debt could work their way out without just being executed. Uh, they would be indentured, they would work as slaves, and there were a lot of different systems for how slaves could gain their own freedom. But ultimately, slavery was a part of that world that Peter's addressing. Now, Peter doesn't address masters. He doesn't try to tell us what masters should do. Instead, he talks to slaves. And he says to them, if you are suffering because you have done wrong, because you're not doing your job, because you're causing problems, what credit is that to you? Not only will you have to deal with people in this world who are gentle and good, who treat you well, but you also have to deal with the unjust and the evil. Now, in our world, we aren't dealing with slavery the same way that it's been in history. But what are the other ways that institutions, systems, workplaces, economic practices, what are other ways that people are oppressed? In fact, the news, politics, people in general are ready to talk about oppression. In fact, we're almost looking for victims everywhere. But it's not for the purpose of glorifying God or pointing people to Jesus Christ. It's for the purpose of the individual. There's a reason why Christians should stand up for the oppressed, because we are reflecting in that role the justice, the mercy, and the love of God. But there's another word here for individuals in oppression that there's a place for Christians to suffer under powers that they have no control over and endure it patiently, without complaining, without trying to start a revolution. And you could find that in any corner of this world today is the need for us to remain humble and patient because if Jesus hadn't done that, where would we be today? <clears throat> if Jesus decided not to submit to the suffering that was placed upon him, he would have never gone to the cross. He would have never carried our sins. He would never have put up with that corrupt Roman government and the crooked religious powers that were conspiring to wrongfully put him to death, he would have stood up and gathered his followers and started a revolution. In fact, that's what they thought he was going to do. That's why they killed him. But when the time came for him to face that hour, he didn't submit because they had swords and clubs. People can come to your door and it doesn't matter how many guns you own or what kind of influence you have 
in the public office. If they want to take you away, they take you away. It wasn't because of swords and clubs that Jesus went to the cross. It was because he accepted it. Because the freedom was in his mind to submit not to them, but to God. And these six patterns show us how Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. And that in trusting himself to the Father, we find the same power in ourselves for the ways that we might have been oppressed, wounded by somebody who was exercising control over us, struggling with economic problems, financial problems, workplace difficulties, a boss that just won't leave us alone. Or your friend might be dealing with that, or your neighbor might, or someone you can reach out to might need this word of encouragement. By his stripes, you are healed. Now, if you didn't think it was enough to deal with government and you didn't think it was enough to deal with slavery, we've still got to deal with marriage. Now, I took all of these together because if you break them up, and I say I preach one Sunday on government and one Sunday on slavery and one Sunday on marriage, you're going to get all disconnected and you won't all be here. So the message has got to be kept together. Remember, 1 Peter was meant to be read all together, one message, one letter, one sermon. So as we go on into chapter 3, we need to remember this was written before there were chapters and verses. And verse 1, when it says likewise, is carrying on the message that was right before it about submitting to the government, submitting to the masters, and now it says submitting to your husbands. I do think because of the world we're living in, it probably should start not with wives, but with husbands. So I'm going to start with the husbands here. This is a very strange topic. Before I can ask women whether they're submitting to their husbands, we have to ask men whether they're submitting to the Lord. Because before we could talk about women submitting to men, and me as a man in particular, I have to ask myself, do I know what it means to submit to the Lord? Because if I don't know what it means to submit to Jesus, then I can guarantee that marriage, no matter how humble that wife might be, is going to be problematic. The same likewise that begins verse 1, wives, be subject to your husbands, also begins verse 7, likewise, husbands. Meaning that Peter is envisioning the same message about submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, following in the pattern of his footsteps, suffering with him, being humble and being a servant with him, both for wives and for husbands. In other words, everyone, men, women, children, are all called to submit to Jesus. Likewise, husbands... 
live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The calling for husbands, then, has to do with understanding. When you live with your wife in marriage, husbands are called to understand their wives. Understand them as the weaker vessel. Now, the word in the Bible for knowing someone, when it's talking about knowing your spouse, is an intimate word. It's more than just you know the color of her hair. Or you even know what clothes she likes to wear on Tuesday. Or what her favorite meal is. That's not the facts that we're talking about. When the Bible says a husband knows his wife, he's talking about sexual intimacy. And the word here is that husbands should live with their wives knowing them in that intimate way as a fragile vessel. Now that can be kind of controversial. It can even be misunderstood. What we're not saying is that women cannot be strong. They can be strong. And in fact, often when the husbands are doing the wrong thing, you see how strong women can be. It's not saying that they can't be strong physically, that they can't be strong emotionally. But in a marriage, there's a design for husbands and wives to complement each other (coughs) by understanding the differences. And from the beginning, God created Adam and he created Eve. And Adam was meant to protect and guard the garden, to take care of it, to tend and keep it, to make sure his wife was taken care of as well. So when husbands then look at this situation and say, well, she needs to submit to me, and I would like blah, 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 he's not understanding. He's not understanding his own role as Jesus Christ in the marriage. A wife depends on her husband. And when she depends on her husband, as in the Garden of Eden, it requires a great vulnerability. She has to trust him. It means opening herself up physically and emotionally to the very core of her heart in order to become one with that man and to trust that in return, He's going to love her back, to tend and care for her. This is understanding her as the weaker vessel. Weaker means if she indeed is going to do what Peter's saying here, to humbly carry herself quietly in the marriage, it also means she's going to be vulnerable. She's going to open up the most sacred places of her soul to her husband. And if he doesn't appreciate that, Guess what happens to the vulnerable, fragile piece of china? It shatters. It's not valued, it's not treated properly, and it breaks to a million pieces. And that's why sex is never just sex in a marriage. That's why marriage is never just an agreement or a contract. It is a becoming one 
arrangement, process, journey that involves both the husband and the wives getting to know each other in a way that they don't know anybody else in the world. And it doesn't always work well. It doesn't always work out that way. And Peter addresses a particular situation where wives are going to deal with husbands not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, when we get back to wives here in chapter 3, verses 1 and following, we should remember three things that this is not saying. I'm going to start three things this is not saying. It is not saying, number one, that men are supposed to tell women what to do. This passage is for women. It's not for men. If the command were given to men, then it would say, husbands, tell your wife what to do. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying it's for women. Number two, it is not. Mean that women can only wear dresses and they have to be silent at all times. That's not what it's saying. When it talks about dressing and adorning yourself, we're going to get to this. It's talking about beauty. It's not talking about exactly what you're going to wear or how much you can speak or what you can say. And thirdly, it is not saying women need to subject themselves to abuse. This passage should not be misunderstood to say that if you are being abused, you need to just take it and suck it up for the team. Now, there can be a time where, yeah, Women are going to take oppression. They're going to suffer. But it doesn't mean you can't also get yourself safe. Because if you're in that situation, you need to know the Lord wants to preserve your beauty. And not promote ugliness in the marriage. But with those three things in mind, it does say to us, women, subject yourselves to your husbands. So that... Even if they're not obeying the word, when they see the way you conduct yourselves, maybe they'll be won over. Do not let your dress be merely external. Braiding the hair, putting on gold and jewelry, the clothing you wear. Unfortunately, because of the way that TV, media, the world advertising portrays men and women in beauty. Young women grow up thinking they need to get attention by the way they look. Just go to a Gamecocks game. <laughs> I've been there. And part of it makes me sad because I see a lot of young ladies that think the way to get a man and get their attention is by the way you dress and the way you adorn yourself. And men are being carried along with the same thing and then they think, well, that's what they need as well in a woman. But how many of these South Carolina University College girls are out there that are not dressed like that? That are not seeking the attention? That are just going to class, doing their job, getting a career, and going on to, guess what? Be a good woman. So for all of these young ladies, this text is saying, the attention you should be looking for 
will never be satisfied in men. Instead, the only satisfaction is to see the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is beautiful. In other words, the attention that should be drawing you forward in how you live, how you dress, how you look, but more so how you feel about yourself is God's attention. He's paying attention to you. And he's not concerned with what you think you see in the mirror. And he's not concerned with how you think you compare to this or that other woman. And he's not concerned with whether you're young or old or in the middle. What he's saying is you're beautiful to me. Because I put into your heart the humility of the Holy Spirit. That is very precious. That is how Sarah followed Abraham when Abraham might have looked like an idiot to her. Going out into this strange place with no plan. He's saying, just God told me to do it. And Sarah's sitting back there with no children, wondering where God's at. And Sarah was very beautiful, it says. But the beauty was not just merely outward. She followed God by faith wherever they went, through every struggle and a few downfalls in their marriage. She kept following on. In the end, Peter says, the goal is to see you're both heirs of life so your prayers may not be hindered. Because the devil's number one goal in disrupting a marriage and disrupting the Harmony of a husband and wife working together in love and humility is to disrupt their prayers, disrupt their love for God, disrupt their heart, so then they're not praying. And the more you don't pray, the more you don't pray together and share your faith together as fellow heirs that are going to be in heaven together, the further and further a husband and wife can drift apart. But putting the Lord back first, submitting to him who committed no sin, who did not lie, who did not revile, who suffered willingly, who entrusted himself to God the judge, and who carried our sins in his body on the tree. No matter what wounding there is in that marriage, in that past, even after divorce, is healed here at the cross. Amen.